This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing Dan Flores, well known for his book, Coyote America, and who has authored at least nine other books. Dan has a new book that has just been published titled Wild New World, and he'll be talking about it at the Country Bookshelf in Bozeman on Sunday, October 16th at 6 o'clock in the evening. Dan was professor of Western history, and he taught at the University of Montana and is now retired to live down in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, Dan, welcome. It's great to be talking with you once again. We did an interview a couple of years ago, so here we yes, go again. We yeah, and I, I appreciate you wanting me to be back on your show. Thank oh, you so thanks, much. thanks much. So, uh, what inspired you to write this new book, Wild New World? Well, it's a pretty big, ambitious project to try to tell the story of uh, wild animals in America from the time of the Chicxulub impact, which, of course, was the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, down to the present day. So that's what I attempt in this book. And a little short of 400 pages, I try to tell this kind of epic story that spans millions of years. And uh, I think I would have to say that I probably have been thinking about working on this book for most of my life. When I talk to people about it, uh, I've just done a couple of booksellers conferences in Seattle and Denver and have talked about the book. And I told people there that I think I probably started thinking about doing a book like this or at least studying this idea of, of animals and people when I was about four years old. And I had an accident with a pet chicken and my mom and I had a conversation out in the backyard when we were burying that little chicken. And I, my question to her uh, and her answer to it kind of prompted me to think about this for most of my life. What I asked her was whether or not, Mom, I'm going to get to see my chickie in heaven. And her response, <laughs> yes, her response to that question stayed in my head for most of my life and really? made me wonder about the relationship between people and wow. other animals. So what were you trying to achieve with Wild New World? Well, I tried to put together in a single volume in one book. As I said, the book is a little short of 400 pages of text. This story that is, to me, the grand story, really, of North America. It's the story of how... North America acquired all its distinctive animals and how humans interacted with those animals when we began arriving here 23,000 years ago. And the story, like most stories involving especially uh, us humans, we humans in the environment, it is a story that's kind of a roller coaster. It has highs and lows. And the lows got pretty grim across a long, long period of time. But here over the last century or so, we've made an effort to amend 
our approach to the way we dealt with wildlife, and we've done considerably better as a result of uh, some of the laws we've passed in the 20th century. You describe it as a scientific and historical narrative, so elaborate on that. Well, this book is what some people would refer to as a big history, and for those of your listeners who have read people like Jared Diamond, for example, his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, or uh, Yuval Harari, who wrote a book called Sapiens, a big, sprawling history Uh of human beings a few Uh years ago. This is, Wildly World is a book like that, in that unlike conventional history, it doesn't rely exclusively on written documents in order to, to assemble its stories. I have to start with things like paleontology and archaeology and fields that historians don't normally consult because I wanted to begin the story, as I said, in the wake of the Chicks impact because I wanted to describe how North America acquired uh, its animals. And one of the ways that we've been able to do that recently over the last 20 years or so is with genomic science, the new science of the genome. The genetic genome, of course, uh, has been sequenced not just for human beings, but for quite a large number of species these days. So suddenly, here in the last 20 years, we've been able to tell a lot more about the histories of not just people, but other animals as well. And so I called on this recent science as much as I could to explain, for example, the story of how America acquires its bestiary, the kind of animals that humans find when we finally get here, and also to give us some clues about what might have happened to some of those species, because genomic science can tell you very interesting things. It can tell you from a few specimens of the last creatures that are around how healthy those creatures were, whether or not they were becoming extinct because of background causes or whether or not their extinctions were caused by a sudden shock. And so genomic science is telling us a lot that we never knew about the world uh, and about uh, particularly about living creatures in it. So what are some of those stories that it tells? Did you begin with mammalian life on the North American continent, or did you go back behind beyond that? Well, I started with the impact itself to describe how the fifth extinction, we've had five extinctions, mass extinctions on Earth so far, and many of us think we're involved in what's called the sixth extinction right now. But the last one we had, the fifth extinction, caused by this asteroid impact 66 million years ago, mm-hmm. as we all know, it wiped out the reigning life forms of the time, which uh, were the big lizards, the reptiles, and the dinosaurs, and that enabled the possibility for mammals to emerge. So I start with the a description of the impact that changed Earth forever, and then began to track over the next many millions of years how North America acquires the animals that humans find when we get here. And some of them come out of continental evolution. It's one of the interesting stories of this part of the book, I think, which is really all all in the first chapter, that 
many of the animals that we think of as being creatures from other parts of the world actually evolved in North America and then traveled elsewhere. So, for instance, among our animals that evolved on the continent in the wake of the Chicxulub impact were horses and camels and wolves and a whole host of creatures that for many of us, we tend to think of them as we think of camels as being African and Middle Eastern and Asian, and we think of horses as primarily being creatures that we brought to North America. But in fact, those animals all evolved here, and in some cases, here for 30 or 40 or 50 million years, and only survived elsewhere in the world, but didn't survive in America. What were the conditions here that enabled those uh, creatures to develop as opposed to the rest of the world? Well, North America was in an interesting position, of course, because it, uh, as a continent, North and South America being the last continents that humans are going to find as we travel around the world, the reason for that was that they were isolated by oceans, by the Atlantic and Pacific in particular whereas Eurasia and Africa are all basically connected together. So it's possible for humans to come out of Africa to enter Europe and enter Asia, and these big grand continents in that part of the world are connected so that traveling by foot you can actually explore the entire landmass. But to get to North America and to get to South America is a very different proposition. So Part of what happened with North American evolution is that we're not only producing our own continental species, like some of the ones I just mentioned, but Mm -hmm. North America, when times are propitious for it, when the sea levels drop and there are land bridges connecting North America to Europe on the east and to Asia on the west, we benefit from the transfer of animals from that had evolved in those continents to North America. So many of our species that we think of as being kind of classic North American species, for example, bison, uh, are actually animals that evolved in Southeast Asia and began migrating across the land bridge out of Asia about, we think, somewhere between 400,000 and maybe as recently as 200,000 years ago. So bison are actually a fairly recent arrival in North America. The elephants, the mastodons, and the mammoths uh, also came out of a different part of the world and ended up migrating to North America about 15 million years ago. Same is true of a lot of the birds that we end up with in North America. They come from other parts of the world in cases like very famous uh, now extinct species such as passenger pigeons. They come out of Asia about 15 billion years ago. And ivory-billed woodpeckers, which were just declared a year ago to be extinct in North America, are tropical birds that passed up the Isthmus of Panama into North America uh, within the last two million years. So North America then becomes this kind of evolutionary laboratory in its own right, but it also is a destination for creatures from other parts of the world. So on the Atlantic side, was the connectivity with the eastern continents, Europe and and Africa, was that in the north or in the south or in both? Well, all the land bridges in North America were in the far north. 
and that played an interesting role in the kinds of animals that got to North America because it selected for creatures that could exist in cold conditions. So most of the animals that are going to be migrating back and forth between America uh, and Asia and Europe are going to be creatures that can do well in pretty frigid temperatures, which is why we end up with things like woolly mammoths, for example. Those are elephants, unlike Asian and African elephants. These are elephants that can survive in very, very cold temperatures. So the connecting bridges are always up in the north on the eastern side. They're in Greenland and Iceland. And on the western side, of course, it's Alaska and the Bering Land Bridge that connects to Asia. But how did monkeys get from Africa to South America without populating North America? Well, they didn't populate North America, and the monkey story is a story of a separate evolution of species in South America that are not in the same families as the monkeys of the old world. Right. I mean, we have we have that sort of thing taking place in North America as well. We have, for example, the pronghorn antelope, which for all the world, and it's how it struck many early observers, looks like a creature out of Africa. It looks like a gazelle, a Thompson's gazelle, or uh, some other African gazelle, but it, in fact, evolved separately and independently to occupy a similar kind of landscape, the Great Plains. And the same is true for, uh, I mean, we had a, a North American cheetah uh, that actually is related to cougars, and that particular cheetah uh, is not related to the cheetahs of Africa, but it's a uh, oh, really? case of, of uh, similar evolution uh, in the two different continents. So uh, you you talk about genomic evidence. Uh, talk about that some more. Uh, what what kind of uh, traces were you able to discern uh, with the genomic evidence? Well, what genomic evidence can do that's particularly useful, at least useful in a book like this, because, uh, I mean, I'm trying with Wild New World to grapple with the whole story of North American history. That means in this last 500 years after Europeans arrived, and we began in North America experiencing wave after wave of extinctions, of species that had been here in many cases for millions of years but can't survive two or three hundred years of our presence, the question, of course, is why? What happened to them? And part of the explanation that um, Americans have kind of conveniently come up with is that many of the species that we lost, passenger pigeons, Carolina parakeets, heath hens, which is a a prairie chicken that was uh, found on on the eastern coast, um, and many, many others, that all these were just sort of uh, natural uh, calamities that no one could prevent. They were just a result of American progress and the coming of civilization in North America, and so they were the inevitable result of our presence. What genomic evidence enables you to do, though, is to look at the actual genomes are of some of the last specimens of creatures like passenger pigeons, for example, that got collected 
to determine whether or not there was some reason beyond our involvement that these particular animals became extinct. And in the case of passenger pigeons, for example, the genomic evidence indicates that this was a bird that was, I mean, it was the most numerous bird in North America and the most numerous single species of bird in the entire world. It was not a creature, according to the genomic evidence, that was likely to become extinct at all. And so the argument that the biologists who are conducting these studies are making is that the sudden and abrupt extinction of many of these animals seems to be laid directly at human hands. It's our presence and the way we converted many of these creatures into commodities in market capitalism that brought about their extinction. I mean, that's important because we've struggled trying to figure out why so many species got lost in American history and exactly what happened. And as I said, the easy answer and the one that makes us feel the best about things is that these were inevitable sort of byproducts of the spread of civilization. But it's looking more and more, the studies that I examined almost invariably argue that it's a direct consequence of human-inflicted mortality on these species that brought them to an end. So it's something that we kind of have to look in the mirror and look at ourselves about. We still tend to kind of argue about ourselves that we're not really responsible for things like global climate change. We're not responsible for extinctions. But the evidence seems to point in the other direction, particularly with respect to these species I mentioned. Talk a little bit more about market capitalism and what it is and how it resulted in a, in a loss of species. Well, it's one of the interesting kind of convergences of American history that this country emerges in the same year, 1776, that Adam Smith wrote his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, about a natural system of economics, uh, which we now know as capitalism. Um, Essentially, Europeans brought with them to North America a version of a global economy that exploited the resources of colonies like those in North America owned by the British and the French and the Spaniards and the Russians, exploited the resources of those colonies to benefit the mother countries. And one of the resources that Europeans saw in North America, which had long since been depleted in Europe, were wild creatures. And what they particularly saw were animals with pelts and skins that could be converted into either luxurious clothing, in the case of the pelts of, say, beavers or sea otters, or leather, in the case of uh, animals like deer and leader bison that could be used for a variety of purposes in the European economy. And so with no one seemingly claiming ownership of the animals of North America, I mean, Native people attempted to argue again and again in treaty negotiations that deer and bison and other animals were like the Europeans' cattle, but Europeans never did concede that point to them, and 
basically wildlife in America was just wide open for the taking. And so very quickly, one of the things that happened in the colonial period and ex- extended all the way into the early 20th century, it's why we lost animals like passenger pigeons uh, and nearly lost buffalo and lost a whole host of others. Um, the great auk, the northern hemisphere penguin, for example, was one of the first ones to disappear, is because we sort of blithely converted those animals into market commodities and killed them for the market and sold their parts, their mm-hmm. fur or their skins to make leather, their eggs, uh, in the case of birds, their plume feathers, in the case of wading birds down in Florida. All of that became a part of the American capitalist system, and it kind of functioned like this. It enabled people in rural areas to have a money-making project. They could kill, for example, herons and cranes and spoonbills down in Florida and sell their plume feathers to fashion designers in New York and Paris. And this is a way for rural people to basically make money in the American economy. And so this went on for 400 years from the time Europeans arrived. I mean, their first instinct on seeing all the wildlife abundance of North America was what a killing they were going to make in terms of their economy. And we didn't manage to stop it until the early 20th century. So that's how market capitalism comes to play this kind of deciding role in what happens to a lot of the wildlife that Europeans find here in the last 500 years. You get a little more philosophical in your book when you talk about the loss of wildlife diminishing the quality of life uh, now in in America. Talk a little bit about about that. Well, I do get a little more philosophical because, I mean, um, you know, the classic statement in America about this is Henry David Thoreau's magnificent journal entry that he made in 1856. And he called it to know an entire heaven and an entire earth. And what Thoreau did was he sat down and started reading the accounts of what Massachusetts had been like when the first Europeans had arrived. And here he is only 200 years later, 250 years later, and he recognizes that many of the grand species and things they describe in terms of migrations, of bird migrations filling the sky, it's all over. He can't see any of it. And he writes in his journal that it's like realizing that some demigod has come before you and plucked out of the night skies the best stars and constellations that were there, leaving him unable to really experience an entire heaven and an entire earth. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, we don't really think about the fact that we no longer live in a world where passenger pigeons are putting out the sun. We no longer live in a world where Carolina parakeets with all that tropical color are flitting around in the treetops and doing their gymnastic hanging by their feet things that the early uh, naturalists in America described with such wonder. We don't really think about that anymore. And, I mean, that may be a way, I suppose, for us to not 
think that we've lost out on an entire heaven and an entire earth, but I can tell you, having grown up in Louisiana uh, at a time when people were still searching for ivory bill woodpeckers that might be present, the last ivory bills ever seen in North America uh, had been seen and studied about 100 miles from where I grew up in Louisiana. And so I just grew up constantly looking for ivory bill woodpeckers, hearing stories from my grandparents about a time when there had been cougars in the woods and realizing there were none anymore. Growing up in a place like Louisiana in the 1960s and never seeing an alligator or hearing an alligator roar in those bayous and swamps around where I grew up because alligators were already on the endangered species list as a result of having been wiped out by the market economy. I mean, those kinds of things when I was a kid were really meaningful to me. I mean, I had I know that my grandparents actually saw they were still alive when there were passenger pigeon flocks in Louisiana. And I never got to see anything like that. So unlike a lot of modern people who don't seem to ever think about this and think that the world we live in is perfect in the way it's always been, I'm like Thoreau. I tend to really regret what has vanished from North America and I don't get to see anymore. And it's a pretty profound collection of things, uh, I can tell you, from having written this book. Well, Dan, we're getting short on time, but uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you expect the impact of climate change will be on wildlife in North America. Well, you know, I'm not quite as despondent over climate change and its effect on wildlife as some people are. Uh, And I think one of the reasons for that is because uh, I'm a big believer in uh, natural and Darwinian natural selection being one hell of a tool. I mean, I don't know how we humans are going to survive climate change. I think we're going to have a really tough problem ourselves, having built our modern world in the existing climate. We're going to have a hard time coping with the changes that are coming uh, and that are have already come. But I think... Uh, As I said, natural history or or natural selection is a a hell of a tool. And I think a lot of species are are likely to, I mean, their ecologies all over North America are going to end up scrambled. I mean, they already are. We think that somewhere between 40 and 85 percent of all species in North America are on the move, moving to new places. And so we're going to be creating whole new ecologies. And some species that can't move, are going to be trapped, and they very likely may become extinct. There's no question. We're going to lose quite a number of species, but we're also creating conditions that are going to birth whole new species. So I sort of think that the natural world will ultimately be okay, that we're sort of like that asteroid impact 66 million years ago. The sixth extinction is really our doing, and we've been transforming the earth, wiping out species and undermining ecologies for at least 25 or 30,000 years. I think the sixth extinction has been going on that long. It's happening in slow motion. It's not just a phenomenon of the modern day. It's why we don't have elephants, mammoths, and mastodons in uh, North America anymore. But I think that... Uh, as I said, a great 
Darwinian show is on the way for those of us who are willing to look at climate change and wildlife populations from that uh, particular point of view. Well, uh, I appreciate your optimism. I hope that uh, I hope that you're right. But uh, thanks very much. We have run out of time, but I appreciate your willingness to do this, and hope people will show up for your appearance at the Country Bookshelf. Stephen Rennell is going to be there with me, so I suspect they will. Oh, okay. Our guest today has been Dan Flores, who will be discussing his new book, Wild New World, on Sunday, October 16th at 6 o'clock at the Country Bookshelf in Bozeman. Come on out to meet and talk with Dan. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.